Heavy petting here on cliffcentral.com uh, every Wednesday. However, this will be the last Wednesday. Um, I am relocating to Cape Town, as mentioned, um, but who knows what lies in the wings. Uh, we'll see what we can do about bringing you more animal news all the time. Um, so this uh, heavy petting, we've got the following to look forward to. We look at the last two on the list of the world's most intelligent dog breeds. Um, we also chat to um, Dr. Guy Fivey, who was in last week. He spoke to us about the animals that are slimming down in the pet competition. Uh, there was nine dogs and a cat. And he's back on the phone to chat to us today about cat stress and disease. Obviously, I'm worried about taking my four cats down to Cape Town in the plane. So it'll be good to chat to him a little bit about stress and how it affects um, our little furry friends. And also the story of a Tasmanian devil death, which is being investigated at the U.S. Zoo. It's a very strange story and lots of questions around it at the moment. Um, and then also we'll speak to Paula Geordie, who's a behaviorist, and uh, she knows exactly how to make dogs sit, stay, and listen. So let's get right into it. Heavy petting, and we kick it off doggy style. We spoke last week about Excalibur, who was the dog of the Spanish nurse who was put down after the nurse contracted Ebola. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how um, now the Spanish nurse has recovered, in fact. She didn't have Ebola after her um, time in, you know, away from everyone else to, what's it called when you're in, you know, <laughs> I'll get it. I'll <laughs> think about it just now. Anyway, she's nurse Teresa Romero. She's 44. That's at isolation. She went into isolation after contact with infected missionaries. And uh, she's now tested negative for the disease at the hospital in Madrid. There will be further tests carried out to confirm the results. However, the handling of her case prompted public outcry and street protests because her dog Excalibur was euthanized despite uncertainty about whether animals can in fact give us or transfer Ebola and also signatures to the tune of 390,000. That's how many people objected to him being put down. However, he was put down in the end and it seems as though it was unnecessary um, and it brings us to the other story, also a nurse, but this time in Dallas, Texas, who was diagnosed with Ebola um, after contracting it from a patient in her care. And her dog um, is a King Charles Spaniel named Bentley, and he wasn't put down, but he's been placed in quarantine, which is what uh, the protesters were asking for Excalibur. Um, and he's in, still in quarantine and being investigated, even though there is no proof that animals can transfer Ebola to humans. So that's nurse Nina Pham, and uh, we'll keep updated with her story as well. Um, we've been covering the most intelligent dog breeds. I suppose covering is not a good word to use when you're talking about dogs. Um, but uh, we've been talking about the most intelligent dog breeds in the world. We've counted down from number 10 to number 3. They went like this. In 10th place, the Australian Cattle Dog. In 9th place, the Rottweiler. 8th, the Papillon. 7th, Labrador Retriever. 6th, Shetland Sheepdog. 5th, the Doberman Pinscher. Fourth is the Golden Retriever. Third, we featured last week, was the German Shepherd. And now the second most intelligent breed of dog in the world is the Poodle. Exceptionally smart and active, bred to retrieve things from the water, and the miniature variety may have been used for truffle hunting. Bet you didn't know that. Well, here's Dogs 101 with more. The Poodle is one of the most popular dogs in America. The perception is that this is a girly, girly dog. The Poodle was originally a hunting dog with roots in Northern Europe. 
The word poodle comes from a German word which means puddle because these dogs are actually water retrievers. Water retrievers? Hunting? How did we get from there to this foo-foo dog of today? The foo-foo cut of a poodle, let's see. The little puffs of hair were placed around their joints, the idea being that those puffs of hair would keep the joints warmer in the water. This is Mitzi. She's in the continental clip. The most popular cut is the continental clip, one of many variations. Poodle puppies are kept in their own special clip. It's the only breed that comes in three sizes. The full-size standard, the miniature, and the toy, which stands less than 10 inches. But whether it's a standard, miniature, or toy, all poodles have the same breed standards. I became famous in L.A. because people would see me walking down the street with two pit bulls and a toy poodle. And by the way, you want a fantastic watchdog, get yourself a toy poodle. Despite the size variety, all poodles have been bred with three distinctive traits. Unlike the fur coat of most dogs, poodles have a hair coat. Dog fur grows to a point and then is shed, but poodle hair continues to grow. They're very low dander, they don't shed, and they're really ideal for people who have a lot of allergies. The poodle has been crossbred with other popular breeds to make more hypoallergenic pets. The Labradoodle, the Woodle, and the Cockapoo. Poodles are also known for their proportionately long legs. These powerful legs make the poodle a favorite trick dog for its athletic abilities. They love to prance. They hold themselves with really beautiful high esteem. They're amazing to watch. But this breed is certainly not all beauty and no brains. The key characteristic of this dog is its intelligence. When it comes to trainability, poodles are amazing. There are poodles successful in essentially every activity that dogs have tried. Poodles are unofficially ranked second to border collies in terms of intelligence. And like Labradors, their intense desire to please make them ideal for work as seeing eye dogs, social therapy dogs, and service dogs. If the poodle is a breed that appeals to you, there are some factors to keep in mind. I don't think that there's a breed of dog that you will spend more money on potentially for grooming than a poodle. They need to be bathed every two to three weeks to keep their coat in proper condition. Overall, poodles are a wonderful family dog with a great temperament. They're really great for kids, they're great with families, they're great with single people. They love to be social. At 11 to 12 years, the poodle lives a long time. But owners need to be wary of bloating, a blockage in the intestine that can be fatal. This versatile breed needs plenty of space. They do tend to be pretty active dogs. They tend to be hardy, fun to be around. Finally, training is where the poodle shines. Remember, every dog has its own unique personality and traits. But overall, the poodle is an adaptable dog. He'll keep you company for years to come, but has some health issues to be aware of. The poodle is high maintenance when it comes to grooming and is a winner when it comes to training. Finally, this breed is a great family pet. This dog will make you out to be the best trainer in the world if you know what you're doing. That's the poodle's second most intelligent 
dog breed in the world. If you were listening carefully, you would have heard that number one was given away. If you weren't listening properly, then uh, I'll reveal exactly which is the most intelligent dog in the world coming up a little bit later in the show. For now, uh, we had Dr. Guy Fivey in studio last week who was telling us about very fat pets who've become very trim pets. Um, he's from Hills Pet Nutrition South Africa. Veterinary advisor Dr. Guy Fivey on the line. Thank you very much for joining us. Morning, Dan. Morning, everybody. I believe that you've been in, an, in, an, uh, in a, a meeting. Is it a stressful meeting? Um, somewhat, yes. <laughs> Important and stressful, but uh, luckily I was allowed to go out. So you wouldn't need to take the hillspromo.co.za stressometer test to measure your, st- your stress levels. That you can do, by the way, if you go to um, hillspromo.co.za. There's the kitty stressometer. Now, mm, as you know, as I've mentioned, I'm relocating to Cape Town, and on the plane I'm putting my four cats. Yep. I think I might be more stressed than them, but... Um, okay. What sort of things should I worry about um, during this time for them? Right. So, so um, when we look at stress in cats, one of the major stresses that we've, that we've found is actually moving house. Um, you know, not only are cats uh, what they get, get used to, the environment, um, but uh, the whole stress of, of you know, changing, uh, getting into b- uh, baskets, that kind of thing that they might not be used to, mm-hmm. um, it's a huge stressor for them. So, uh, you know... Um, cats stress very easily because naturally they are a, a solitary hunter and um, what we do then is we put them into a family unit and as you say you've got four cats so there's, there's a whole lot of interactions going on between them that you may not see as well yeah. um, so <clears throat> from your point of view I think the best is to get them used to the idea of getting into their crates and moving yeah. um, and then obviously also you know, um, look out for the, for the stress signs um, and what are those? All right. So, so besides, cats, besides showing me all claws and teeth at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we think. But actually, the most stressed cats are the ones that hide away. Um, so, if, if we were to ask an owner, you know, what does your cat do all day? And, and the owner says, I don't see the cat all day because it's hiding. That's actually the most stressed cat. Mm. Um, so, that's the one thing. There's obviously is aggression towards people and pets. Um, they can get um, gastrointestinal upset. So, they, you know, that's one of the problems as well. They might not eat anything. Um, often they will excessively lick and groom themselves. And one of the, the things that we've found, too, is that the, there's urinary tract problems. Uh, mm-hmm. They start urinating outside the litter box. Um, you know, all of a sudden your cat starts weeing on your bed or in your sink or in your basin. Uh, then you must know that your cat is probably fairly stressed. So there's um, a lot to look forward to, in other words, with this yeah, move. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think, I think you, can, uh, you can be proactive um, and, and put them onto... Uh, there's a new diet that, that we just brought out for, for stressed cats. It's, it's, it's more to do with the, the urinary tract, but it also helps them to be, to be less, uh, less stressed. Um, so, so that is a, an option to sort of start getting them onto that and getting them um, more relaxed. Right. Um, okay, so besides moving, what other stresses do cats face in, if, if they're not, uh, you know, if they're, if they're staying in one household? And especially yeah. between cats, because as you said, they're solitary hunters. They actually don't like being with each other. Yes, they, they don't necessarily like being with each other. And, and, and even cats that grew up with each other, uh, when, when they've done the research, that, that they'll spend at least half of their life away from each other, specifically away from each other. So they do have to have their own special space. Mm. So really, there's a, there's a whole lot of things we need to look at in terms of, of it's all about resources, basically. So um, a cat needs 
a place to scratch. It needs a, a litter box that's clean. It needs food. It needs water. Um, and if it can get those on its own terms, and each of them on their own terms, then there's going to be a lot less stress. So, again, um, you know, we also don't see, often see the, the subtle signs of, of, of stress and interaction between cats. Um, you know, aggression from one cat to another can be very, it can it just be a stare, and that other mm-hmm. cat will be then stressed out. So it's very important, I think, fr- from that point of view, to allow them areas where they, can, where they can do things like scratch, where they can get up. Um, cats like to have places where they can get away and be high up to look down on what's happening. Um, they must have resources like food and water that, that's separate. Each of them has their own, um, their own resource of that, and it mustn't be near the litter trays and obviously not in a place that's stressful to cats. So, you know, having the, the, uh, the food next to the uh, washing machine that suddenly turns on and makes a big noise is not great for cats. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing. And you need to, you need to really uh, look at each cat in its own and, and get its environment to, to be um, less stressful for that cat. So looking at their food, um, just getting back to the urinary health, what, what yep. is that food called? And it's, it's called Hill's Prescription Diet, yeah. uh, CD, Urinary Stress. Okay. So and, and it, Yeah. Yeah, essentially it's a, it's, it's a diet that, that helps to um, prevent uh, uh, bladder problems in cats. But then also has added um, uh, ingredients L-tryptophan and milk protein hydrolysate, um, which are, are two ingredients that, that have proven to help reduce stress um, in cats. It's sort of the same thing in humans, you know, um, to relax and uh, de-stress. Our mother used to give us a glass of warm milk before going to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really where the milk comes in. There is this, this um, protein in there that, that helps to um, relax us and, and, yeah, and does the same thing for cats. Okay, well, perhaps I should try and eat some of it myself to calm my nerves. <laughs> and I'm already wearing a kitty pheromone calm color. <laughs> okay, well, yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, the, the pheromone, uh, the, the, the calm colors have been shown to have some effect, mm-hmm. um, but, but uh, on a scientific basis, not, not as good as these, um, these ingredients and this diet itself. Always diet, diet first. Yep. <laughs> Dr. Guy Fivey, thank you so much for spending time with us during your stressful meeting. And uh, <laughs> we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Good. Um, good luck for your move. Thank you so much. Right. Cheers, right, Cheers. Bye. Bye. Okay, so um, let's uh, move back to doggy style after what's new pussycat. And according to a new study, dog owners actually love their pets in almost the same way that they love their own children. This is a real study on real human brains. Here's more on the research. According to a new study, dog owners love their pets in almost the same way they love their children. Researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital monitored the brain activity of 14 female study subjects who were all mothers to at least one child. They scanned the subjects using fMRI imaging while showing them pictures of their own children or dogs and compared that data to how they reacted to pictures of unfamiliar babies and dogs. According to the study, there was a common network of brain regions involved in emotion, reward, affiliation, visual processing, and social cognition when mothers viewed images of both their child and dog. The same brain activity didn't happen while looking at pictures of strangers' babies or dogs. There were some differences in brain activity between the pictures of pets and children, too. For example, the region of the brain associated with facial recognition was more active while looking at a picture of their dog, while the midbrain was more active when the mothers were shown a picture of their child. This indicates to experts that these areas of the brain might be important for significant emotional connections.
Researchers say their follow-up studies will have a larger group of subjects that include both men and women. Now, just very recently, I heard the news that Canine Zone magazine um, oh, is brand new because it was previously called Caesar's Way magazine. You'll still find Caesar's Way magazine on your shelves. And in fact, the name's changing and the launch issue of that happens on the 17th of December. Still the same stories, still the same fantastic content. And it's just a magazine that we really love. And uh, we're very pleased to have Sharon Dale, the editor-in-chief of Caesar's Way, soon to be Canine Zone magazine. Um, and also... A very special person who's written an article and or two <laughs> for this magazine. Um, her name is Paula Geordie, and she's an animal behaviorist. Our favorite kind of person and guest to have in the studio because it's the thing that perplexes our minds the most. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much, Leanne. Thanks for having us. Yes, my pleasure. Paula, um, can you give us a little bit about your latest article, which is in the magazine already that's, that's on shelves? The importance of teaching... Uh, people how to be calm around your dog Okay Yes Well <laughs> we were just talking about stressed cats And I suppose if a human being is stressed It'll probably set off stress in their dog as well Won't it? Absolutely They mirror you mm. And so uh, the calmer you are The calmer the dog is going to be The more excited you are The more excited the dog is going to be And it's a very big problem that I see It's a, a general problem I mean people create it unintentionally and, um, you know, the syndrome where you arrive home and your dog is so happy to see you. So you greet with excitement, high pitched voice, high pitched voice. Yeah. And, um, all you're actually doing is creating so much excitement and the dog learns to greet that way. Mm. And one of the biggest problems that I see most commonly is dogs jumping up. Yeah. Okay. And, um, so it's very difficult to try and teach people that, um, uh, in order to get the proper greeting from your dog is to walk in calmly mm-hmm. and completely ignore. That's, you know, that, I that's cannot, the hardest thing. I cannot teach people to ignore their dogs. Yeah. It's so difficult. Well, of course, I mean, you're teaching people here. You're not, you're not necessarily teaching animals. There is no dog that has a problem, <laughs> only the owners. Yeah, there you have yeah, it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, to, to try to, to teach proper greeting because dogs actually greet with their nose first. Okay. And in order to do that, they can't be jumping up and being all crazy and wild and excited. So um, you just walk in and just ignore them. And when they're calm, then you greet them quietly. Does, okay. does a lot of this not have to do with the breed of the dog? Um, I mean, I've got a, a little miniature pincher yes. who's just so excitable and... Um, look, I'm trying not to blame myself here. I'm trying to blame the breed. Do you think it's working? Um, yes, the breed does come into, it, up to a certain point, it does come into account. But, um, you do get within different breeds, you'll get dogs that are more super high energy and dogs that are calmer. Okay. So yes, um, the more agile, the more uh, excitable breeds will will tend to do that but you can still teach those breeds yeah and it's just through patience mm. and calm and repetition yeah that's all that's the thing and that's where i think a lot of people go wrong with training animals is you give up Absolutely. because you have to be so consistent that's you right slip once and the animal already goes back to its right. other yeah. other ways um just to quickly chat a little bit about you know not only when you get home and the the calmness that you need to um, 
uh, portray at that point? When else is it essential? Everywhere. Okay. Everywhere. Um, when you are preparing the food for the dog, you don't want the dog to be jumping up and going all crazy. So you teach the dog to sit quietly and to have his food when he's quiet, only when he's quiet. Um, quoting Caesar, if you ever watched any of his programs, oh, yeah. he's got <laughs> 30, 40 dogs at his dog psychology center. Yes. And when it's feeding time, he will turn around with the bowls and he will look to see which is the calmest dog out of all those dogs. And that is always the dog that he will feed first. Mm. Okay. Also, when you are putting on the lead, I know that people actually teach their dogs to get all excited when the lead comes out of the cupboard. Yes. And Let's uh, go to the at, park. Yes. <laughs> and they, they, exactly. And then the dog is, is running all over the place, jumping up. And you can't put, you can't attach the lead or attach the collar to the dog. So again, you need to teach the dog that the lead is meaning, it's only meaningful when you make it meaningful. Mm. So you, if your dog is already in that bad habit, you take the lead out of the cupboard and you ignore it. And you carry on with your normal life, go and cook, make a cup of tea or whatever, and just ignore it. Every now and then, go back and reactivate that lead. And you'll find that by the fourth, fifth time, the mm. dog is not reacting to it anymore because it's nothing is happening. Yes. And then when he is calm, that is the time when you do attach the collar and the lead. And then the dog will work out through repetition and consistency I must be in this state of mind in order to get my reward, which is to put that lead on and go out for a walk. Mm. So, you know, also before you put the dog into the car, yeah. when you take the dog out of the car on my training field, no dog is allowed out of the car unless it's in a calm state. Mm. If anyone walks onto my field with a dog pulling out in front, lunging in an excited state, I send them back to the car. And I, st I tell them, I don't care if it takes the whole lesson for you to keep that door open and have that dog nice and calm do, before he comes out of the Do car. people get cross with you? I've had, <laughs> look, <laughs> in all honesty, I've only had one or two that have actually left oh, and really? not come back. They're not getting the concept here. No. Well, they get offended when I say, please go back to your car. And yes. I, I want the dog to come out in a nice, calm state. Because it does affect the other dogs on the field. Mm -hmm, when course, you get yeah. a dog that's out of control and overexcited, he's going to create the same atmosphere mm. and then you get dogs lunging out and, and out of control. Yeah. Whereas if you get a dog walking on a loose lead in a calm state, you can go anywhere. Yeah, you absolutely. Can, you can take that dog anywhere and he doesn't stay at home. You see, misbehaved dogs stay at home. Yes. Well-behaved dogs go out yes. and see okay. the world. Um, Paula, the other thing that I think is probably the most important time to be calm is when you're introducing two dogs on your property, for instance. I think I've seen a lot of people you know, physically try and put the two animals together, stroking the one and saying, you know, look at your friend. Where mm -hmm. then I think ignoring them is probably the best and most important time to do that. There is a ritual to introduce a new dog onto your property. And the best way to do it is to take them out off the property on a nice long walk. Again, calm, loose lead. Mm. Okay. And then again, walking in onto the property calm again. The dogs have got to sit quietly, remove the lead and walk. Keep walking. Keep that movement going. Mm. Walk away. And then you'll find that the dogs should get on. 
It's always such simple things. It is very simple. Um, yeah, you must think that we're all pretty stupid <laughs> compared to our animals. <laughs> no, I think it's just people tend to humanize dogs too much. Yeah. And um, they they do not understand what we are saying. They they basically pick up on your energy. And when you are trying to um, talk quietly to a dog, but you see the thing that where people go wrong is they molly coddle or pamper, and it's got a, like an anxious tone. Mm. Like, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And and that actually, they pick that up as as uh, anxiety. Yes. And then they look around and think, you know, why is my human anxious? Mm. And then whatever's there. They say, okay, well, this must be making her anxious. And if it's another dog, that dog could become a target. Yes. If it's a person, that person could become a target. Okay. Yeah. So they don't understand words. They communicate with energy. Okay. So yeah. staying calm, staying aloof, less emotion is actually works better with them. Okay, well, we've learned a lot from you t- just today, and I'm sure we can learn a lot more from your articles. Um, Sharon, um, tell us exactly when this changeover is taking place. The changeover will take place in December. Okay. So the current issue, the October issue, is the last Caesar's Way. You know, Leanne, we did it because the, with the Rand Dollar Exchange, the license fees that we've been paying have been exorbitant. Mm. And also the, we weren't allowed to do anything digital, no digital formats, no websites, no Facebook page. So we, we, we have been promoting our canine zone brand anyway. Yes. And we uh, must say hello to my canine zoners that are listening <laughs> today. Um, and that is where we're going forward. With Canine Zone, It'll, the magazine will remain exactly the same. In, in, in fact, Caesar will be on the first cover okay. of Canine Zone magazine. And we'll still continue to work closely with him because yes. he's given us a lot of opportunities and um, he's an amazing person. Yes. And, um, you know, we're we also looking to now putting out newsletters. The whole aim is to create awareness and to educate people. We're very different in that. It's for dog lovers. Um, we've done some hard-hitting articles looking at uh, dog fighting, mm. um, what we call doggy hand-me-downs in this issue where people are prone to giving away their dogs to strangers, free to a good home. We've been looking at puppy mills, which we're very against, mm. the sale of um, puppies in pet stores that come from shocking conditions in puppy mills. Um, so we'll continue to do that. Yes. And then our wonderful rescue stories, always with Great rescue endings. stories and also lovely photographs of people's pets that <laughs> make you laugh a lot. <laughs> it's probably my favorite section of the magazine. Okay, so we look forward to that. Thanks very Thanks much to, sh- to you, yes. Sharon, and also to you, Paula, for coming in today. It's a pleasure. Thank and you. And best of luck. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Okay, it's time now for helping a horny friend. Yep, we're talking about our rhinos. Um, uh, you may have heard recently that there's been a death of an endangered northern white rhino, which leaves just six of them left in the world. That's right. There's six white rhino, northern white rhinos left in the world. Um, due to rehabilitation programs and successful breeding programs, um, the southern white rhino is, is thriving. And I think they're, they're into 20 something thousand at the moment. But, uh, yeah, this was a 34 year old rhino in captivity. He was one of the last two male breeding white rhinos in the world. His name was Sunni. And uh, he was found dead by his uh, ranger owners um, at the Conservancy in Kenya. Um, so, yeah, that's quite shocking to think that there are just six left. Um, he was one of four northern white rhinos to be moved from the zoo into the wild, where it was hoped that he would 
um, have an easier time breeding. So there were lots of hopes hanging on him. Very sad story. What is good news is that uh, over the weekend, 14 rhino poachers were arrested in the Kruger Park. That's the SA National Parks, which released the information, saying they'd conducted three highly successful operations, which led to the arrest of 14 suspected rhino poachers. That brings the number of poaching suspects arrested in the Kruger National Park this year to 113. Great news on that front. Other animals in the news, a really bizarre story of a Tasmanian devil in a zoo in Albuquerque in the U.S., um, which was found dead in a pool of blood um, at the zoo in New Mexico with its skull fractures, um, fractured rather, and investigators suspected it was killed. Um, the animal was given to the zoo last year by a sanctuary in New Zealand um, as part of an effort to start a breeding program for the species which are endangered. Well, let's hear a little bit more about the story. Thank you. The killing of a Tasmanian devil at the zoo is sparking international outrage. Now, the mayor's office insists it is an isolated incident, but the fact is it happened, and it happened here. And as News 13's Alex Goldsmith found, people in Albuquerque are embarrassed about it. Alex is live at the zoo. Alex? Dean, we still don't know who killed Jasper the Tasmanian devil with a chunk of asphalt or why they did it. But we do know none of this is a good look for Albuquerque. For someone to hurt that animal like that is heartbreaking. It's messed up. Visitors looking for Albuquerque's three remaining Tasmanian devils were left disappointed this afternoon. We haven't yet seen them. They're hiding out in there. But I would hide too if somebody was chunking rocks at me. Jasper the Tasmanian devil was found dead in his exhibit Wednesday morning. His skull cracked by someone who tossed a chunk of asphalt at him. He was one of four devils who came to Albuquerque in December. And the Rio Grande Zoo is one of only two in the country to have the endangered critters. They put a lot of trust in us to take care of them. That's going to put a hurt to everything. You know, Albuquerque, you want to get any kind of different animals, it's going to be, you know, hey, one of your one of your Tasmanian devils got killed on your watch. That might jeopardize that, yes. I've already thought about that, yeah, because we have what the penguins are on borderline right now. What a statement it makes for our area. In Australia, the story's getting a lot of bad headlines. Healesville Sanctuary, which lent the Tasmanian devils to the zoo, called what happened terrible, terrible news. We want to be clear that this does not represent Albuquerque. This, I think, was an isolated incident. The city says because of what happened to Jasper, expect to see more security patrols and more cameras in more places. If we have to put more bodies and more cameras to make it happen to protect our zoo, then we're going to do it. The hope from both the city and zoo lovers that people don't hold Jasper's death against us. I hope they're considerate that, you know, there are crazy people in this world. That's not what Albuquerque represents. We love our animals here. We take care of our animals here. Now, that sanctuary in Australia hasn't given any indication it plans on taking the other three Tasmanian devils back. The investigation, on the other hand, is looking into zoo visitors and zoo staff. There is a $5,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction in this case. Back to you, Dean. What a bizarre story. We'll, we'll keep our, our finger on the pulse, as they say in newsrooms. Um, thanks for the messages on WeChat. Going to miss you so much, Leanne. Hope you have a happy, safe move. Thank you very much to, is that Andile? And Andy Ferry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and also another message saying, I, from him saying, or her saying, I agree we have a, a pit bull and she had the most beautiful, gentle nature. Not the dog, but the humans who are the problem. I tend to agree. Now, a story from the wild, which is also pretty bizarre. Um, 
the wild cheetah population is drastically declining as well, and we're obviously investigating what's causing this. But it seems that in some way they might be killing themselves. What does that mean? Well, Trace from D News talks about the ways that cheetahs never prosper. Hey everybody, it's Trace. Thanks for watching D News. Ever since I was a kid, I loved the cheetah. It's definitely one of my favorite animals on our planet. Cheetahs are speedy, as you probably know. They can hit top speeds of 70 to 75 miles an hour. They live mainly in Africa, though they can also be found in the Middle East. I didn't know that. Cheetahs are notoriously difficult to breed in captivity and don't rebound from population destruction particularly easily. In 1900, the cheetah population was around 100,000. Today, it's more like 10,000. And yes, we are to blame. Climate changes, habitat destruction, the whole nine yards. We are seriously screwing up the planet, but that's not the important thing here, is it? By some measures, cheetahs are doing this to themselves. Researchers from three continents work together to learn more about how the cheetah is contributing to its own demise. Their paper in the journal Science is titled, Cheetahs Never Prosper. Good one, guys. It all comes back to their speed. Cheetah evolution has afforded them super speed, but not much else. They don't have the heaviest claws or the strongest defenses. Their defensive play is the same as their offensive one. They run. Once they've made a kill, they don't defend it. Come on, cheetahs. What are you doing, man? There's no playground mother to tell. You just got to get in there and try and fight for it. Hyenas and lions take advantage of their packs and their strengths to steal kills from cheetahs, driving that zippy kitty away, forcing it to expend even more energy to then go look for a new meal. According to the researchers, the energy a cheetah uses to make a single kill is, quote, relatively small, even taking into account their bursts of speed. Instead, the biggest driver of energy expenditure for the cheetahs turned out to be the distance they had to walk in order to find their prey. Because their kills weren't being defended, cheetahs aren't able to regain the energy that they'd lost by looking for a new catch. You might be thinking, damn those lions and hyenas stealing the cute little cheetah's food, but that's not the actual problem. The problem is these cats have to trek across farmland and around fences or walls. Yeah. It's us again. Cheetahs are walking themselves to death in order to find safe hunting grounds to make another kill. Remember how I said it wasn't about us? Yeah, I I lied. Added to that, the cheetah is pretty easy to tame and has now become a luxury pet in the Middle East. It's possible to tame cheetahs and have them walk on a leash and play safely with humans. And ancient African royalty would take them and use them as hunting pets. Because of this, the poachers steal cheetah cubs, further increasing their level of population decline and then sell them to people who are really rich and want cheetah pets. Well, that's a lot of stuff that I didn't know about cheetahs. Um, something else that you might not know is that the ancient ancestors of kangaroos in Australia, um, now we're talking about 30,000 years ago, they were three times bigger than the largest kangaroos that still exist today. And apparently they were so big, they were just too big to even hop. Here's Jerry Beats News. Kangaroos are known for their ability to hop around on two legs. The ancient ancestors of kangaroos that lived in Australia over 30,000 years ago were around three times bigger than the largest species existing today. According to a study by researchers at Brown University and the Universidad de Malaga in Spain, these large animals were probably too big to hop around like modern kangaroos do. Researchers came to this conclusion after studying the remains of 45 separate kangaroo species, including the extinct giant kangaroo. The bone structure traits indicate to experts that the giant kangaroo was most likely incapable of hopping. They still stood upright and measured about 10 feet tall while weighing over an estimated 500 pounds. Physical differences between kangaroo species affect how they move around, and the giant kangaroos are missing some of the key features necessary for agile hopping. 
Giant kangaroos had proportionally bigger hips and knees and a more rigid spine than those found in modern kangaroos, which enabled them to walk upright. Now, after the past um, few weeks of working with a really cool festival called Beer Fest, um, which is taking place currently at Monte Casino, I was there at the opening last weekend, which was unbelievable. I think my head still hurts. Um, <laughs> I was uh, very um, happily introduced to John Monsoon, who is just one of the people who are behind um, Beer Fest. And it turns out that there is a whole lot of devout animal lovers who are behind the festival. Um, and the festival itself um, is very much involved with Barking Mad or Dogtown SA. Um, and you can donate. I'll tell you exactly how you can do that by buying tickets to get to the show. And it's still coming up next month in Cape Town as well. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for being here. Cool. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, so you are an ex-game ranger and now very much into shark conservation. Yeah. So where did the one stop and the other start? <laughs> um, interesting question. I think it's, you know, I think it comes out of a concern maybe for for species and for animals, the one sort of goes into wanting to look after them and, and protect them. And as you learn more and kind of, associate yourselves around various conservation groups you start to learn that maybe there's a bit of a a kind of an inequality or an imbalance in terms of who's getting the most media share of species you know um i think there's a lot of species that are under threat you know the, the release um last couple of weeks ago about that shock statistic that in the last 40 years which is basically as long as i've been alive um the planet has lost you know 50% of its entire vertebrate uh you know wildlife population which is a hell of a scary but yeah. you drill down into that and you start to realize that there are some species that just get no love that actually deserve it i won't say more but they deserve it more urgently yeah. um so sharks sharks look studying sharks was part of my my studying when i left school when you go off and do the the nature conservation course as it was called back in the the 15th century when i left <laughs> school you you have to go and you go and they, they sort of chuck you off a boat and be like, go look for sharks. And I really got into them and then left conservation altogether um, after a stint in Zimbabwe doing doing wildlife um, management and, and stuff there and got sort of sidetracked into the music industry and, and did that for years and then journalism and ended up at a, a popular sort of sadly defunct men's interests magazine um, here in Ninjoburg. <laughs> Um, and we were running some stories on, on, on sharks and I think we ran about, I was the features editor there, um, at the time and we ran like three stories in a row on, on different shark aspects. One was a guy who'd been eaten or had his legs, uh, unfortunately lost his legs in a shark incident, um, followed by another article a month later about shark finning and, and I kind of sort of had this epiphany of like, what am I actually doing and where mm. should I be? And I sort of remembered that I'd studied and remembered that I loved sharks and, and, sort of tore out of here and got back to Cape Town and threw myself in the water and got well, walked into the Saver Seas uh, Shark Center in Cork Bay, which is amazing. And not many people actually know it's there, but it's been there and it's an amazing resource and demanded that they involve me somehow. Um, and they sort of looked at me like I was mad and eventually did and eventually <laughs> sort of relented. And I, I was just there, I think, just out of, you know, and, and forced myself back into the industry and, and, um, and, and found it so incredibly, you know, soul satisfying and started getting in touch with great white sharks. And, you know, you start realizing that great white sharks get absolutely no love from, from anybody, you know, no one, no one really takes the time to love 
a great white shark. It's very, they make it difficult oh. for us, you know. They're, they're not. Okay, but they don't. You know, they're not the most. They're not the most beautiful animals in the oh, world. They are. Come on, puppies they are much are. cuter. Um, you know, it's difficult. It shouldn't. It shouldn't affect um, the way we think about them. I mean, yeah. rhino. If you if you look at them, do look mm. pretty scary with their horns yeah, and all sorts of things. Nasty. And it's a human thing to want to help a cute, cuddly animal. It so is. it's a little more difficult with a great white. And also, yeah. you know, we hear the stories of attacks and that sort of thing. And um, but yeah, it's not it's not it's not people like myself or beach Durban, you know, holiday goers, holiday makers sure. who are affecting the population, is it? To some extent, in terms of people are very quick to jump on the sort of shark persecution wagon whenever there is a shark interaction and, and we hate the term shark attack because that sort of, you know, implies forethought and I think only humans are maybe capable of, of mm-hmm. actually physically wanting to do that. Sharks are just very, very curious and they're super inquisitive and super intelligent and, you know, they're cuddly as well when they're small. So, you, so you've cuddled some <laughs> yeah, small absolutely, sharks, absolutely. You? <laughs> Any chance you get, and they are amazing animals. But I think they, um, you know, people just propagate this fear of them that they are these man eaters, and and people just don't take the time, unfortunately. And you've got things like Shark Week on Discovery Channel, and that propagates a fear. And you know, one of my favorite toppings, toppings. That's food. okay. Uh, cake. <laughs> Anyone? Uh, one of my favorite topics. Yeah, shark sprinkles. Um, is that of how the media affects our perception of, of animals and, and it's, it, I can talk about it for days because, you know, it's ever since the Jaws. The Jaws movie. Movie. And, oh. and thank you so much for not queuing the Jaws soundtrack yeah. before we came on. Because, yeah, yeah, you know, that's always a favorite. Um, sort of propagates thing and then people just there's so much misinformation about sharks everyone knows a lot about rhinos because they've, they've had to but i mean they're you know they're, once you get into it again and i mean there's a shocking statistic again once you start looking at sharks that there are actually more black rhinos in this country than there are great white sharks mm. and people are like shark, rhinos rhinos and the sharks and you know let's kill sharks um and that shark is an apex predator and once you remove that from the seas the the Balance. The balance is upset and the, mm. the consequences will be very swift, I believe, and, 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 and quite sort of negatively impactful on the human uh, species and all species. So people sort of overlook that. So, uh, you know, of all the species, one can sort of throw yourself behind and put money into and, and dedicate yourselves and, you know, get the tattoo. The shark is the one that I think is so deserving and not many people can think of when the last time it was that they donated money to save the shark. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what can people do? I mean, are there a lot of charities out there? There are, there are so many. There are, there are so many groups that worldwide and specifically in South Africa and specifically in Cape Town, which I'll, you know, take you around and yeah, introduce please do. you, you know, to you them mentioned, all. You mentioned Colt Bay and that's exactly oh, that's where so, I'm moving to. It is. Oh, well then you've so, got no excuse. You'll be, you'll be in there and there's, there you can dive with, with, well, you know, I'll, the seven year car sharks and they're beautiful. I'll tell you right now that I have, that I fear sharks. Um, so really, do. really badly. Yeah. Um, I have a big problem with it, but I need to get over it and I want to. Um, and living it's at the, the sea, I have thing. to do it and it's, the easiest thing it's my opportunity world. now. Yeah. So I will definitely get yeah, just, in touch with you. Cool. I mean, there's, 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 so yeah, you know, just to taking a stroll down Cork Bay Main Road on a Saturday, you'll be able to, um, involve yourself and, you know, in at least three projects that are ongoing that people may or may not know about. So, there are many things, you know, Twitter, go on to Twitter, that, that great tool of, of conservation and, and society that it has become and, and just 
search hashtag sharks and you'll be amazed. You'll be absolutely gobsmacked. There's about 400 organizations worldwide. Um, just for starters that are out there daily doing stuff. There's individual scientists, there's individual activists, there's people in, in all over the country just out there doing stuff for sharks. And it's not enough. It's great that they're doing it. Um, mm. but it's by, by no means enough. Um, you know, there's no backing behind it. There's shark spotters, which is an awesome initiative. Yeah. Actually funded by the city of Cape Town. So. Yay, I see them up on Boys Drive, yeah. um, just above Cold Bay. And an amazing, an amazing resource um, with sharks at heart. And you can go and hang out there any day and speak to the spotters. And they, they're like information-rich human beings that love sharks as well, that have come from impoverished backgrounds and have seen the, oh, I'm going to say beauty, <laughs> yeah. of sharks. Um, and, and absolutely just, just get it. And, and it's just once that groundswell started, you start to actually realize that like, sure, you know, why, why not sharks almost mm. in a way? And they are amazing. And we, we, you know, had interactions with them in the water where we, I've got all my limbs. Yeah. And still, I was just counting your toes. And, and, all there. <laughs> and, you know, they're super, they're just people's reactions going back to your initial question about half an hour ago that I've now getting around to answering mm. uh, <laughs> as is my way um, people can you know just change their perceptions and, and not you know not buy into the media and Hollywood's version of sharks as man-eating ruthless mm-hmm. killers of the deep that you know are out to, to have your legs because they actually don't want your legs they're, they're not very tasty to sharks um, they don't see us on surfboards as baby seals or anything scrumptious they don't see us as the next meal they're, look, they're, they are getting hungry and hungrier as their, their sort of natural food source diminishes but I don't think, and I've sort of checked it out. I don't think sharks at any point are out to, you know, get us. They could yeah. be. They really could be. I think the day sharks evolve and grow legs, we might be in trouble. Yeah. Or wings. No, look, then we've got like Sharknado, another silly yes. movie. Love that. Uh, <laughs> John, thanks so much <laughs> for telling happen. us about sharks and sharing, you know, oh, your, 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 um, message. Oh, and, thank you. Thanks for caring. I don't um, think people care enough. Yeah. And I think what's really cool is, like I said, a lot of people involved at Beer Fest are, yes, um, are. animal lovers, are. and you can help by donating 10 percent of all your ticket sales. Um, this is what Beer Fest is doing yep. um, across all the ticket grades by booking your Beer Fest ticket yep. using the code Barking. Um, so you go to iTickets um, online and you can fill in that code Barking when yeah. you're booking your tickets. And that money, 10% of ticket sales, goes to Dogtown SA, which is yeah. really, really cool. Yeah, cool. So Beer Fest again this weekend. Yes. And uh, that's uh, ne- and then next month in Cape Town. Next month in Cape Town, yeah. And that will be the wrap-up of a three-month-long tour around the country of beer and oompa and pretzels and fraulines and all those great things. Yes. Um, so your life sounds great. You've got you've got <laughs> sharks and and majestical creatures oh, and conservation and beer and beer and donating money to dogs. Donating money to dogs. One yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's well it's a well balanced lifestyle. There you I, go. I choose to, to think of it that way. But, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for thanks caring. very much. You know, I don't think people care enough anymore. I don't think people get angry enough or passionate enough to yeah. make you know. I think, uh. um, yeah, I can't understand people <laughs> like that. They're not me people. I think you're a me people. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much, John Monsoon, and good luck with the rest of the tour. Yeah, it'll be good. Come on down and we'll we'll have a beer on, on the weekend. Friday, Saturday or Sunday.
Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> okay, so we were looking at the most intelligent dogs in the world, and earlier we revealed the second most intelligent dog in the world. This is according to neuropsychologist Stanley Coren, and it's mostly accepted around the world um, as a marker of intelligence. He relied on the assessments of 110 dog breeds and used 200 professional dog trainers, um, and the, the way the dogs were chosen as the most intelligent is if they absorbed commands in less than five repetitions and also if they obeyed them in 95% of the time or better. Has your dog been one of the breeds who featured? If not, it might be this one. The most intelligent dog in the world, according to Stanley Corin, is, not too surprisingly, the Border Collie. Uh, a workaholic, this breed is the world's premier sheep herder, prized for its intelligence, extraordinary instinct and working ability. Here's what Dogs 101 says about them. Stay. Stay. Meet the Border Collie. It's a pretty smart dog. <laughs> Border Collies are the most intelligent breed on the planet, without a doubt, non-negotiable, end of story. Okay, so it's a really smart dog. In fact, on nearly every ranking of doggy intelligence, the Border Collie comes out on top. It's a highly intelligent dog, highly trainable dog. The Poodle and German Shepherd usually round out the top three most intelligent breeds, but Border Collies are canine rocket scientists. Think twice about these dogs as house pets, though. They are not good with novice dog owners. If you don't work with a Border Collie, they're going to drive you nuts and they will destroy every possession you have. The breed is named for the border region of England and Scotland. Shepherds in this area carefully bred dogs over many generations. The result is a dog that may just be the perfect herding breed. I don't think there's any dog that excels um, better at herding than Border Collies. The Border Collie is a born athlete. Its muscular, supple body is bred for speed and stamina. Very, very hyper, a dog that loves to run, loves to herd, loves to chase animals. Shepherds were also attracted to their Border Collie's fiercely intense stare, sometimes called the eye. Border Collies use this gaze to intimidate and control livestock. When they're focused on something, it is very hard to break that concentration. That great intelligence is the key to this herding dog's prowess. Border Collies were bred to complete complex tasks, both with humans and independently. When you hear the term man's best friend, a Border Collie comes to mind. A fourth unique physical characteristic gives the Border Collie even more of an edge. When herding, the dog can move quickly in a crouching position. It's reminiscent of a stalking cat. This trait is due to a space between the tops of the shoulder blades. The almost locomotive movement allows the Border Collie to make subtle adjustments to manage a herd with absolute precision. I can't think of many dogs that are as driven and focused as Border Collies. Spin, spin, good, roll over. Other way, play dead. All the way dead, Venus. One, two, three, go. No. 
night. Today, Border Collie enthusiasts like Animal Planet's expert trainer, Zach George, are finding new creative outlets for this remarkable breed. Border Collies are exceptional at dog sports. Good. Good. Go. Zach's high-flying collies go for big air when chasing frisbees. They also have a few head-turning tricks up their sleeves. Zach's collie Venus even knows her multiplication tables. What is three times two? Whether it's herding sheep, playing frisbee, or performing amazing tricks, training is where this breed shines. But if you step up to a border collie, you better know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, you could end up with a dog who is incredibly destructive. This is not a good apartment dog. I would definitely want to see this dog in a rural environment. Besides some concerns for hip dysplasia and eye issues, border collies are generally healthy. For the most part, these guys live to a ripe age. There are several coat types, each with slightly different grooming requirements. But in general, this is an easy dog to groom. Brushing and combing is essential because the dog does shed. It's a double-coated breed. If its need for mental stimulation and exercise is met, the Border Collie is a wonderful family pet. But if you don't provide for its needs, watch out. If you don't focus that herding instinct, they are very likely to start hurting your children, which means nipping at their heels. In general, the Border Collie thrives with lots of space and activity. It's an extremely healthy dog with relatively light grooming needs. Though super smart, Border Collies won't just lie down for anyone. This breed is definitely not for everyone, but if its needs are being met, the Border Collie is a good family dog. Well, that wraps it up for Heavy Petting on Cliff Central. Um, it is the last Heavy Petting show, but um, I promise that I will not ever lose my passion for animals. Please follow me on um, Twitter. It's at Leanne Mole. That's L-E-I-G-H-A-N-N-M-O-L. And also on Facebook, uh, my page there is LeanneMole.SA. Um, so, yeah. Perhaps, perhaps a resurrection of heavy petting in some form or another. Um, keep, keep uh, watching me on social media and I promise to keep you informed and uh, obviously bring you the latest in animal news as every day passes. Up next on Cliff Central, Rookies and Rockstars with Jade and Simba. Um, Simba was apparently in Italy late, uh, lately and chatted to a massive star. So keep listening for that. And thank you to Melissa for your message on WeChat. Going to miss your friendly voice, Leanne. Enjoy Cape Town. Thanks very much, Melissa. And Tyrell, who says after our Tasmanian story a little bit earlier, Tasmanian devil, um, that reindeers and Tasmanian devils are two animals that people don't believe exist and they actually do. Um, and thanks to our producer, Duncan, who says that he forgot off the list unicorns because, of course, they exist. <laughs> thanks, Duncan. Okay, yeah, so keep listening for Rookies and Rockstars up next on Cliff Central.